Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Welcome to The Fader Interview. I'm Alex Robert Ross, Editorial Director of The Fader. In the lawless hours that stretch between midnight and sunrise, Alexander Crossan knows what you need. Spurred by that blip in recent history that revoked our right to party, Crossan went into the creation of his third album as Muramasa with one goal, to reverse engineer the precious resource of hedonistic joy. That mission spawned Demon Time, a genre-splicing headrush of a dance record, featuring guest appearances from Shy Girl, Slow Tie, Erika de Kassir, Toji, and Isabella Love Story. It's well established that Crossan is one of the most ebullient producers of his generation, but Demon Time flexes his dexterity as a songwriter, a vibe curator, and, above all else perhaps, a wicked party host. In conversation with the fader Salvatore Mackie, Crossan discussed the demons that got him there, the lessons Pink Pantherist taught him about songcraft, and everything he still got up his sleeve. Thank you so much again for taking a minute to chat with me. I'm so stoked to like really dig into this record. But obviously, before that, I want to go back a little bit to the raw youth collage of it all. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> I love that record. And, you know, given when it came out back in January 2020, I think most people would probably consider that ill timing. Um, speaking from a listener's perspective, I actually think it was perfect. Like that record fueled so much of my angst during these vast stretches of unknown. How did you feel in the weeks and months after you put out this project that you obviously put so much heart into and it was such a departure from, I guess, what people expected from you at that time? Yeah, as you say, it's like not optimal timing to try and put out a record and go on tour and stuff. I think that was literally like a month or two before the whole uh, pandemic of it all. I mean, the second album is always, you know, difficult, as they say. So I just wanted to like skip the difficult second album and maybe even the third album and go to like the weird fourth album that nobody asked for just straight away and just kind of set set expectations for the audience and kind of free myself up in a way from being expected to make a certain kind of music or say a certain type of thing. But yeah, I think it came a little bit early in terms of the guitar music revival. Now the whole pop punk thing is like hit overdrive and everyone's trying to be all-time low and uh, Paramore and that now. <laughs> but uh, yeah, I really love that record. I mean, I don't think anybody asked for it, but I really love it. <laughs> Even though tonally it's pretty obvious that this new music leans a bit different, it seems like that Raw Youth Collage moment was sort of pivotal for you insofar as bringing this grungier, guitar-driven energy into the work. There's traces of it on Demon Time, but also you hear it in your work with Yule or Gretel Hanlon. Is that something that you want to really keep going with in this project? Yeah, I mean, I'm I'm a guitarist. I started playing guitar. I was in punk bands as a teen, as we all were, maybe. Yeah, it was kind of nice to return to that with a kind of fresh perspective, having produced for so long and 
kind of learning how to curate some of that distortion and some of those like guitar feelings into uh, into other production as well. Yeah. Tell me about, I guess, the time after Raw Youth Collage. Like you've put this record out, you've spent so much time giving it the TLC that it needs, and now you can't tour it and I guess express it in the way that maybe you designed it to be experienced. How did you sort of reckon with that? Yeah, you hit the nail on the head there, particularly with the aspect of like not being able to tour. I mean, maybe this is too like inside baseball, but I put like hundreds of thousands of pounds into like this live show. I had a full band that was full of like these really cool kids that I'd scouted. We managed to play like Alexandra Palace in London and like we did a few like really big shows and it was great. It just felt like a real zag from my previous zig. And uh, it was really exciting for me and I was really enjoying it. And yeah, then everybody got sent home like halfway through the tour. We were actually like chasing or running away from COVID around Europe. Like we would pull up to a country, the government would put that country in lockdown like that day, the show would be canceled and we'd be like, okay, let's drive to the next one and try again. And after like two or three times doing that, I just said like... We need to put everybody on flights and get everybody home. Because at that point, we didn't really know what we were dealing with. I mean, the whole thing seems quite banal now. But at the time, it was like, what happens if you catch this thing? Like, is it a death sentence? Like, for sure. It was kind of scary. But yeah, in the time after that period, I didn't really have time to like mourn the record because the whole anxiety of the lockdown and everything. So yeah, I'd, I'd say I probably spent the first like six to eight months not doing anything like not listening to any music not doing any music just like being here at home <laughs> did you feel inspired at all at that time like I mean I hate to always bring back the pandemic into it because I feel like every artist I talk to about like the past two years it always goes back to that and it's like ugh, like we're all saying the same thing like we're just kind of like dancing in circles but like for you to have been building up to this moment and then to just have it like cut short, how did you sort of reckon with that creatively or or did you at all? Did you just kind of try to disconnect and, and maybe give yourself a period of rest that was maybe harder to achieve? Yeah, I think I eventually arrived there at the kind of restfulness. But I, yeah, as you say, it's it's really annoying to have to talk about it, but it is such a big part of like how the creative industry has been affected in the last few years. And like, I think it informs a lot of the music that's come out in the last few years. At first I was like, I mean, a lot of artists will say this. They're just like, oh, this is great. I've got loads of time. I can be really productive. I can sit in the studio, do whatever. But it was the opposite of that. It was like guilt for having so much time and not being able to do anything with it and those sorts of things. But yeah, as you say, like every artist kind of has the same story. Like, oh, I thought I was going to do loads of stuff. I ended up doing nothing. But then actually the conclusion from that is like, it was kind of good to step away from it for a second and have an excuse to not have to be on all the time and touring and kind of promoting things and posting and give some thought to other things, I guess. And then I kind of got into a space of like, well, maybe it's worth saying something introspective about isolation and loneliness and things like that. So I kind of started down that path with a few ideas. And the the kind of revelatory moment for me with this new album was realizing like, oh, actually, it's the opposite. It's like, isn't it more exciting to imagine what music will sound like when we're allowed to be together again and when we can celebrate and spend time and 
kiss each other again and whatever else. So yeah, that was the kind of connection. But that didn't happen until like probably a year into lockdown. Did any of that music from that phase of like really, I guess, going to the introspective, isolated part of your brain make it into this record? Or was that completely separate? Well, Together started its life as like a six minute sort of ambient tech dirge. And like, it was really like horrible. It sounded like a Lorne Bolf score or something. But it felt it felt important to include that. I think I wrote it sort of subconsciously, but actually looking back at it, it's like, oh yeah, it does kind of say something about how I was feeling about being disconnected at that time. And I thought it was important to include something of that in the record. Mostly the overriding kind of motivation for all the music just became like, how do we have fun? How do we soundtrack things that are mischievous and devilish and kind of like funny in a way? There's like a lot of sort of comic value to it, I think. It's disarming to sort of present a cultish or like evil imagery in this like totally charming and cutesy kind of way, which I really like the, I like the juxtaposition of that. It's funny that like this came out of this time because even if you look back at like the album cover for Raw Youth Collage, that looks like that face could almost be a demon, you know, like it's very prescient in a, in a way. I think it was realizing that that is very important to me when I'm making stuff is like, does it sort of make me smirk? Is there something subversive about it that is almost funny in a way? Having the time to realize how important that is to me and then kind of centering a whole record around it and just chasing that feeling kind of at the expense of all else. And Demon Time kind of like flies off the handle in terms of genre because there's no brief. It's just like, is, is it fun? Is it exciting? Could it soundtrack a moment of socialization? <laughs> when did the first Demon sort of reveal itself? Are we talking literally like the the illustration side of it? Or are we talking like spiritually? <laughs> I guess when did the idea of a demon become first apparent? I realized that if you sped up baby cakes by three of a kind a little bit, you could put a drill beat under it. And like, it kind of made me giggle. And I thought like, oh, that's so cute. Like imagine if, uh, you know, I managed to get like a big US feature on that, like with the sort of intense underground UK energy mixed in with the US thing and like that kind of alchemy and throwing things together in the pot. That was the first feeling of like, oh yeah, I can just kind of have fun and that can be impetus, you know, in itself. So that was the first kind of occurrence of the philosophy, I guess. But then the idea to kind of center it around that this idea of demon time didn't come till much later. So I didn't really have a name for that. I was kind of just chasing that feeling. And then I was talking to Shy Girl I think we were just having a cigarette or something and we were talking about one of us had been up to no good in some way. And Shai said, oh yeah, it's definitely on demon time. 
And I was like, click. Like, that is the perfect way to describe what I want to do. So that's when it revealed itself in that way. And then kind of concurrently with that, I'd been uh, reading a zine that uh, Emma Gaspar published. I think it's called Closet. I'd been I'd been looking at it a lot while I was kind of making music and listening to music, and I just found myself looking at it a lot. The way she illustrates kind of has that extraterrestrial kind of demonic energy, but it's presented in this way that is so approachable and so like aesthetically gentle and that kind of thing. And it just suddenly occurred to me like, oh, well, if I'm just trying to have fun, why don't I reach out to Emma and see if she'll kind of help me create uh, a kind of aesthetic world around it. So there's three answers for you. And there's the three moments that kind of coincided. Yeah. Once that term was coined and you sort of had this idea in your head, did you start to see these demons reveal themselves like out during this time? Like, was there any moment or or instance where something happened during this, like, you know, that occurred within this framework that you set yourself that was like, oh, that's a demon? Well, at this point, we're still talking about lockdown. Like, we were all still stuck inside. So really, I'm trying to presciently predict what people are going to want or need. And like, just, I think just sensing like a hunger in pop culture for just like, there was a few albums that came out during lockdown that were big artists kind of doing introspective, quieter moments, like their sort of lockdown albums, if you like. And it felt like people really appreciated the empathy, but actually were kind of yearning for escapism and optimism and kind of renewed relationship with joy. So I was kind of trying to imagine what that might look like now, you know, when when I'm putting the album out. But this was like a year and a half ago. And then kind of being vindicated as we got out of lockdown and just hearing stories of friends doing stupid shit because they haven't been able to get out in so long. Or like there was a lot of relationship breakdowns that kind of like resulted in a kind of new wave of single people that were had been cooped up for so long or lost like a couple of years of their their young adult lives and kind of needed to make up for lost time. So there was a kind of gold rush for joy, I think. Yeah, I think hedonism was was at an all-time high last summer. Like the highs were so high and the lows were so fucking low. Most of these songs kind of marry those those two together, right? Like even like the saddest choruses on this record, see you don't think of my emotions, they're turned into this thing of joy when you I guess speak the the demons into existence. You're you're unleashing them in a way. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's the complex nature of like this idea of demon time. Is like it's not a hundred percent about happiness or like fun per se, like fun in the traditional sense, because like it can be really fulfilling and joyful, like catharting in a way, or like making a mistake and kind of like having fun doing it. Maybe you wouldn't do it again, or it's kind of this weird version of fun that I think people find themselves having in a post-pandemic kind of world. You don't see, you don't think of my emotions Might as well leave you be It's not like you notice You don't see, you don't think of my emotions Like you
talk me through the criteria or ideology behind how you assembled this roster of collaborators on this project. I guess the intentionality around it happens just within the framework of like, is this person doing something really interesting? Are they making something really fun in their own work? And yeah, I get asked similar questions a lot about like, well, how do you choose who you work with? What's the criteria? Like, there's so many people out there, like, who are you going to work with? And I think it always just starts with like, first of all, a love of what they do individually from my side. Secondly, hopefully a requited love from them for what I do. And then there's a kind of meeting in the middle, kind of stepping into each other's worlds. And that's true on this record, maybe more than ever. But another kind of fourth dimension of this is like combining people which I'm kind of experimenting with more on this album is like okay it's interesting to have Pink Panthers on a record that's already sick with Shy Girl that hasn't been done before that's cool so here you have two Vanguard UK artists on a song with a kind of classic UK garage sample but then what would be more fun is to kind of alchemize that with like a really punky US rapper and it had to be Uzi. And then kind of the whipping up of all of those ingredients is kind of a different type of fun in itself that's bigger than any of the individual parts. I'm more in my curatorial bag than ever, I would say. I'm trying to be some sort of like mad Y2K Warhol or something. Talk me through getting Midas, the Jagaban, and Toji on slow-mo, because that song is crazy. That's a confusing song, like, from any angle that you look at it, because it's like Midas is partially or maybe entirely known for her kind of Afrobeats output. And we got in a session, and I was playing her sort of beats of that kind. And at a certain point, I turned around and I was like, but what do you want to be making? Like, obviously, this is what, is kind of expected of you or this would be a, an easy win and she was just like i want to make all kinds of music you know i'm not i don't want to be limited i don't want to be pigeonholed i was like well i've been listening to a lot of like kind of rage rage beat stuff and like weird like surf gang and like all this stuff why don't we do that and she was like try it and kind of whip that beat together in 20 25 minutes she freestyled over it and then i took what she freestyled and kind of reconstituted it into more of a structure and then I think we spent the rest of the session just listening to it really loud and being like this is fun you know and it felt like one of the more immediate incarnations of that pure idea of just like we spoke to each other about what would be funny or what you know what would be unexpected executed it very quickly and then just had a great time doing it and then Toji is someone who he supported me in Japan a couple of times and like I've done some remixes for him and we kind of have a long distance relationship, creative relationship. But again, it was just this idea of like, well, what what's the curveball? It's already odd as a record, but like, how do I really put my foot on the gas in terms of like bizarre combinations that are kind of comical and like, you know, he's rapping about being Postman Pat in that song. I don't know if you have Postman Pat in America. It's like a kid's TV show. It's basically the weirdest reference that he could have made. I, I implore anyone listening to look up Postman Pat and then look up Toji. And, you know, that was one of the more like melting pot records where it was like, nobody would ever do that. So why don't we do it? <laughs> Yeah. 
This is like definitely, I feel like your most sort of global record to date. Like it definitely branches out of wherever you made it. Was that mostly London or did you did you get to travel at all to sort of bring these collaborations to life or was it was it pretty much remote? Most people came to me in the end. I think by the time I'd started recording and kind of assembling the Avengers of fun, you could do a test and then hang out and then maybe do another test afterwards. So like there was opportunities for uh, physical meetups and stuff, which I vastly prefer. I think it's really important. But obviously some of it was remote. But yeah, it's kind of become really interestingly inconsequential in sort of modern pop music, whether you're actually together when you make the song. (laughs) For better, for worse. For better if you're a 17-year-old kid in Utah who like really loves hyper-pop and wants to connect with people and work with people, you know, like it kind of doesn't matter where you are, like... But maybe for worse, if you're trying to create a really special record that has like a magic air about it or like that comes around really serendipitously. And yeah, as you say, swings and roundabouts, isn't it? So I had read that, you know, a big guiding light for you on this record, as opposed to the heavy planning of the first few, was the Notes app that just read fun. Do you remember like when you wrote that and like why it became kind of the foundational, this is what I'm going back to. Well, normally the process with the record for me is I do the artwork first and then I would already have a super clear idea of what it is in my head, but I would write kind of a big brief document for other people's benefit, for the collaborators, for the label, for my manager, whoever it is, and kind of pull together a bunch of references and do a bibliography and like write down what the hell I'm trying to do and that sort of thing. But that just felt wrong on this one. I was like, I should just be referring back to the singular question, like, is it fun? And if the answer is yes, then we should see about doing it. Like, for example, like it occurred to me to make like demon themed jewelry and immediately all sorts of like roadblocks came up like oh it's really hard to manufacture jewelry it's really expensive probably no one would buy it if it was proper because it's very expensive you know if you want to do it in sterling silver etc 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 and i just like i remember looking at the note and being like fun like it would be fun let's just find a way like i'm not bothered about whether we sell any of them let's just try and do it and like that attitude really permeated or permeates every aspect of the record not just the music but the kind of campaign itself did that feel liberating because obviously like with this one it seems like the artwork must have come after after the music right no no not not at all we shot the artwork um, i want to say like november 2021 so about a year ago Maybe I had a few demos then, but most of the music got made after that. That's amazing. I don't often hear of that sort of like reverse engineering. I feel like sometimes when people start doing that, the music will often veer away from that. But you kind of keep that as like a flagpole to work toward. Yeah. And like if I'm trying to figure out whether a thing sounds like it belongs on the album or whatever, I'll just open up Photoshop and like stare at the artwork while I'm listening to it. And that's like a very extremely regular part of my process. And yeah, we took that photo ages and ages ago. And before that, I kind of drew a version of it like using Sonic the Hedgehog and like I kind of like did a like a crappy mock-up of it just so I could look at what it looks like and imagine it like 
Yeah, I don't know why that... I mean, I do know why. I love record sleeves. I think they're really important. The way we consume music at the moment as well, in terms of streaming, the artwork is like ever-present. You're looking at it as soon as you're listening to it. Or like, you know, I can remember like being younger and crate digging on YouTube and kind of like having the video accompaniment to the song that is just the artwork. And like, you're just staring at the artwork while you're hearing this new music. And like, that to me is like revelatory. Maybe I'm just like a visual learner or a visual person but the the two things are like pretty inseparable for me probably to a fault like if a song has really bad artwork i have to get over that to actually hear the song i saw that you have like the the demon finder on the album art where you can like use the blank space to sort of seek out the monsters yeah that's a hard thing to describe on a on a podcast for sure that again was a, another example of i i was in an airport like a couple of years ago, and I was in a sunglass, one of these sunglasses shop things, you know, there's a million of them at every airport. And they had a poster on the wall, and it was like, if you put the polarized sunglasses on, you can see this skydiver who's in this photo. And if you take them off, you can't see him. And it's to do with like the polarization, and there's a layer over the photo. Of, and I was like, has no one done that for an album cover yet? Like, surely we can look into that. That seems like lots of fun. And then just getting hit with the, you know, yeah, okay, but then you got to sell sunglasses or you have to like make polarized sheets for every record sleeve, which costs, you know, 40 quid a go. So like to manufacture them is going to cost, you know, 70 pounds. Then to sell them for any kind of profit is more than that. Is anyone going to buy it? blah, 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 blah. And like just trying to work around that and discovering this like weird decoder technique was like a really fun process. I'm saying the word fun way too much. I need to get a better spiel if I'm going to be doing press around this album. Yeah, it's just meant to be fun. (laughs) (laughs) No, I love it. I love it. That's innovation that we need. I'm glad you fought for that. Talk me through your I guess, songwriting on this record and what sort of maybe goals you set for yourself as a writer, because I feel like oftentimes you're just sort of referred to as a producer, but the songwriting really shines on this project. And I'm curious if you went into it with any intention on that side. Well, thank you. Nice to be recognized in that way. And yeah, I think it's a big invisible underrated part of what any good producer does is like serious input into songwriting in some cases if you're pharrell you wrote the whole damn thing and like someone's only performing it you know there's a million pharrell songs pharrell produced songs that he wrote the chorus or he wrote all of it or whatever and i feel like that's one of my favorite parts of it and i think it's where i maybe eke out some of the competition is like i really care about the songwriting and i'm willing to really go deep into that and restructure things. And a lot of the process in the studio for me is like, like with Blessing Me, for example, that started life as a kind of 10 or 15 minute improvised take that uh, Pa and I had done. It was right at the end of a session. He was like, I've got to go, but let me just quickly like throw some stuff down on here. And then taking what he had done and kind of, chopping up lines, finding lines that rhyme with each other, replacing breaths here and there and like getting the cadence right, making it sound like he just came out with that that chorus. That's like a really important part of the process that's all over the record. Baby, why you blessing me? Baby, why you blessing me? 
baby, why you blessing me? Baby, why you tempting me? Baby, don't worry, keep blessing me. Baby, why you blessing me? Baby, why you blessing me? Baby, why you tempting me? Baby, don't worry, keep blessing me. Bless me, baptize me, kaki. Me love you ride and I like jillapy. Wet up your pussy like pipe or your jib. Clap up your body when you ride in my dick. Bless, 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 bless me. Hollaback bitch is another one. Don't keep meeting like this. All this sticking around and shit. Gotta be real. Can't be begging this shit. One of us hitting the switch. Gotta go nuclear in this bitch. Dropping a bomb on the both of us, bitch. Knowing this shit. Scratch that itch. Sick of this itch. Won't be a hollaback bitch. 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 Backyard bully in bed. Don't give a fuck about giving no head. Hate what comes to the weak boy dead. Try comes first and the rest can wait. No time comes. A good majority of that first try verse, like I brought to her. I was like, I've got an idea. Here's a bunch of lines, you know, like here's the concept, like here's the idea for the song. But well, to actually answer your question, I think the uh, the intention with the songwriting is like there's this era of like R&B pop music kind of like, I mean, mentioning Pharrell and people like Timberland as well. There's a kind of simplicity or like a naivety to their songs, both in the structure and kind of sonically. And uh, I think that really aligned with this idea of like, well, it doesn't matter if it's the most technical sound in the world because it's fun and it gets the party going or whatever, you know. And Pharrell and Timberland particularly are very guilty of just using the first like synth preset that they find and they're just like, yeah, that sounds great. And uh, that's a really iconic sound, I think. And the same goes for the songwriting. Like, you know, the the line that you improvise as a joke that makes everyone in the room laugh and you think, oh, but we couldn't include that. That's the line, <laughs> like using that. And that happened all over this record where people didn't know I was recording and they were kind of joking. And I was like, that's it. That's like, that belongs on a t-shirt, what you just said. And they were like, yeah, but don't use that. And I had to kind of talk people around and like, get them to embrace that idea of like, it's not that serious, like it's fine. And even you said it, so you obviously thought there was some value in it or you sung it, you know? I also appreciate like your use of restraint on this record, right? When it comes to like these like really like sticky choruses, it's like you you get one or two. You're not really overusing these these hooks or these things that keep us coming back. Like it's it's dished out in, in a way that doesn't overfill, which I really appreciate. Yeah. That goes back to something that Pink Panthers and I talk about a lot because Pink Panthers is obviously the queen of 60 second songs and things like that. We kind of stumbled upon this thesis like between us where it was like the way that kids consume music now, it's like traditionally, if you're Nile Rogers, you open the song with the hook, you have a verse, then you maybe have a double hook then maybe like a middle eight and then to round it out of course like you go back to the hook to really settle it in on the first lesson that's like a four minute song four minute disco song pink panthers was saying that the medium that people consume music via now is like looping video so like the repetition of the chorus is built into the medium of consumption so you only need one chorus because it's going to loop anyway and I was just like, that is a really interesting way of looking at modern pop music. 
And like it's demonstrated in, I remember when Post Malone released Rockstar, there was a big controversy because the, the version that he uploaded onto YouTube, I'm pretty sure it was just one minute 30 or two minutes of just the chorus, like over and over and over again. Like so that people would just come back to it to listen to the chorus. And yeah, again, I just find that a really interesting envelope pushing way of looking at it. And yeah, these the songs on Demon Time don't really stick around. It's interesting actually, I just came from rehearsal and we're like adding the the songs into the live set. And it's funny when you get to the end of them, because a lot of them just stop. Like <laughs> they just stop because it's like, okay, that's all the ideas for that song. I'm not gonna like long this out. And that's interesting in a live setting. But I kinda like it. I've been enjoying getting a little bit, you know, of insight into your process sonically on IG reels and TikTok, like showing like the specifics is like in terms of like engineering these sounds that populate this record. Was there one particular sound that gave you (laughs) grief that you had to like really like go back to or like finesse? Hmm, That's a good question. I can think of a couple of examples where like, I had to go back and make it sound more demon timey, but I'm not quite sure how to like verbalize that idea. Well, maybe an interesting thing to talk about is like the process sonically for this album is different from anything I've done before. Normally I would get in the room with people and then kind of feel out an idea and not think about sonics or anything and just kind of get it to a place and then decide if it belongs on the album based on what it sounds like. But with this album, I spent a few months beforehand just sort of like harvesting drum samples and synth patches and things. Things that to me just sounded like the album art or like, you know, uh, sounded like this idea of demon time or things that were fun sounding. There's that word again. And kind of building up like a palette of paint almost so that when I was in the room with people, if I knew that I wanted them to be on the album, I could just kind of start using these sounds and start loading in stuff without any second thought to like, oh, is that the right kick sound or is that synth a bit too X or Y? And that kind of streamlined the process a lot because it was like shortening that gap between having the good idea and being able to execute it. It was like a real shortening of that space, which I think allowed for a lot more fun. (laughs) Where did you pick that? up from? And is that something you think you're going to carry into Muramasa projects going forward? I think it came about quite logically, where it was like, well, if the idea is to completely eliminate thought from the from the process and kind of get as close to complete off-the-cuff expression as possible, then you kind of want to set up your tools in a way that allow for just free expression. But then I got to think about it and I was like, this is actually similar to like some of the early techno pioneers. Like obviously they would have their specific, you know, Roland 505 and they would make an EP just using the 505 and kind of, it reminded me a little bit of that. Or, you know, it's not that odd for a band, you know, they'll write an album, then they'll get in a studio with a producer and they'll probably spend a week like dialing in guitar tones, picking which snare for which record, that sort of thing. So it's not unusual, but I don't really know of anyone who's applied it to a sort of production sense. I mean, there's producers that like gather their own palettes in general, but this is the first time I'd done it kind of for a project specifically, kind of conceptually almost. Is there any particular sound on this record that might surprise people? Like 
that you haven't maybe mentioned yet that that you picked up from a surprising source? The, my favorite sound on the record is the Jesus Christ producer tag, which was a revelation for me. It sort of pops up all over the album, along with a bunch of other like radio DJ style Demon Time tags that I sort of collected during the album recording uh, from the collaborators. But yeah, that that Jesus Christ, it expresses something about me that I think is interesting because it's really comical and it's kind of exciting and like it's a bit sacrilegious and like it doesn't really belong there. That's one of the more demon timey sounds, I think. And the the source of that sample is is an extremely well kept secret that a few people around me know, but I can't disclose. But it's a very it's a funny story. <laughs> Alex, I don't want to keep you too long, but you know, in conclusion, sort of rounding out this Demon Time conversation, three albums into your career, how do you feel like the mission of Muramasa has changed? And like, what are you taking from this project into whatever's next? I mean, maybe at first I didn't feel like there was a mission. I was just kind of like trying to make music at, at university. <laughs> I guess the mission has always been to do something a little bit interesting that people don't expect, but keeping it within the kind of limits of popular culture to kind of Trojan horse some sort of interesting stuff into a very listenable environment. And I think that's kind of remained true, but I'd say I'm definitely moving into a period of like curatorial thinking and kind of transitioning from like only thinking about my artistry into sort of like discovering a side of myself where it's like, Actually, I'm not the main piece of the puzzle here. I'm just sort of pulling some strings and like getting people together and creating fun playgrounds and kind of platforms for people to express themselves on. And I think getting comfortable with that was a big part of this record and definitely is something that I'm going to carry forward. But the biggest revelation is just it's not that deep. It's just music and it should be fun. We deserve some fun. Like... We've had such a shit time of it recently as as human beings. So yeah, I hope people get some sort of joy out of it. I guess that's the that's the conclusion. <laughs> that was Alexander Crossan talking to the Faders Salvatore Mackey. Muramasa's new album, Demon Time, is out now via Polydor. The Fader interview is engineered by Tony Giambroni. The executive producer is Alex Robert Ross, and the associate producer is Raphael Helfand. We'd like to thank Loughton Audio for providing our microphones. You can find them online at lautenaudio.com. And we'd like to thank James Ivey for providing our intro music. If you enjoyed today's episode, we'd appreciate if you left a five-star rating and review. If you like listening to The Fader, good news. We're now on the new live radio app, Amp. Download it from the App Store now. And keep an eye on thefader.com for essential music news, interviews, and essays. We'll be back soon with another episode of The Fader Interview. Goodbye until then.